plan, and everything that, that Jesus talks about in this chapter sort of flows from that sign. And there's really two main points that were being emphasized in this chapter. Do you remember what they were? Um, two main points that Jesus draws from this miracle he performs? It's really where everything um, is coming from that Jesus is discussing. His deity. His deity, excellent. He is the Son of God, right? And what that means, he's the Son of God, means he is very God of very God. He is just as much God as God the Father. He works on the same prerogatives as God the Father. That's why he does his work on the Sabbath. But he's also the Son. He is not a competing deity with the Father. He's not contradicting the truth that there is one God. He is in perfect harmony with God the Father. Um, everything he does, he does in response to the Father, in dependence on the Father. And everything the Father does, he does through the Son. There is complete harmony and unity within the Trinity. Um, so that was the first sort of major point um, that... Jesus begins to discuss, it's really what he starts um, teaching in verses 19 through 29. What does it mean that he is the son? Then there was another point. Do you remember what it was? As the son, what does he come to do? Only in everything that the Father has given him to do. Very good. Only in everything the Father has given him to do. He is the Father's agent, the Father's representative. Um, and what specifically is that? Someone was saying something. Here. It has to do with the new creation, remember? He was the Father's agent in the first creation, right? Through God, through the through, through the Son, the Father created all things. And now the second creation, the new creation, will be accomplished through the Son as well. Um, and the point is that through Christ, his coming, the new creation has already begun. The, the resurrection to eternal life has already begun spiritually as he is raising people through the new birth. He's created a new humanity for the Father, for the new creation now and is coming. Um, he will be the Father's agent. And when he returns, he will bring physical resurrection and life um, to all. He will be God's agent for salvation, for all the Father's purposes there, and for judgment. But then we came to this section last week in verses 30 through 47, in which Jesus is now shifting from talking about his role as the son to talking about the witnesses to his identity. In other words, he's not just coming and giving baseless claims. He's making some pretty magnificent claims about himself, right? Claiming to be the son of God, claiming to be the father's agent to carry out all of his purposes. But the point of this section is that he's not come and just giving baseless claims. He's not just come seeking his own glory by making these claims. Well, how is that the case? And that's why we entitled this whole section Credible Claims and Culpable Unbelief. His whole point is that any claim he makes about himself is in full reliance on and full accord with what God the Father has declared about himself. He's making the claims he has because of the clear witness of the Father. So do you remember the three ways we said the Father has testified about Christ? He's not seeking his own glory, and he's not just making baseless claims about himself. He is supported by and authorized by God the Father through the witnesses the Father has made about him. So what were those three ways the Father has testified about his son? Do you remember? Without cheating? <laughs> uh, 
Okay, so prophets or the Old Testament scriptures, right? The prophets would be certainly a part of that. And that was the third way, sort of the, um, the, the greatest way the Father has done that. So excellent. What else? There's two others. Through his works. Through his works. Excellent. Jesus says, the very works I do, the Father's given to me, I do them, and they testify about me, um, about who I am as the, as the Son. It's excellent. What else? John the Baptist. John the Baptist. It's good. In those three ways, Jesus said, are the ways the Father has provided witness, testifying about his identity. So in this section, Jesus is defending himself. He has witnesses to his person, but we said it doesn't stop there. It doesn't merely stop with Jesus on the defensive. In a sense, he's in this whole section turning the tables of the courtroom around from acting as the defendant with witnesses to acting as the prosecutor, even as the judge who's calling forth witnesses to testify against the unbelief of the people. In other words, the same witnesses that testify to the person of Christ also testify against the people for their unbelief. The witnesses to Christ not only say something about the person of Christ, but they also say something about those who reject Christ. You remember we said the problem with the Jews is that they consistently fell short by misusing the witnesses. They always stopped with the witnesses, and they weren't led by them to Christ. And the best example was the Old Testament scriptures, right? Jesus says, you think that in them and having them and searching them, you have eternal life. But you miss the fact that they point to me. They're meant to lead you to me. The Jews thought they had eternal life simply by possessing the scriptures. The more you study it, the more you study the law, the more life you have. Jesus said, no, the whole point is to drive you to me. And they consistently fell short. Whether it's John the Baptist, they rejoiced in him. They loved the works of Jesus. They loved the Old Testament scriptures. But they failed to be led by those to Christ. Now the question is why? Well, what's going on? Why is that the case? Well, look at verse 40, and, and this is where we stopped last week. There's something fundamental going on in their heart that prevented them from responding rightly to these witnesses. It's not because there's a problem with these witnesses. There's a problem with the people's heart. It says, yet you refuse to come to me. In the Greek, it is literally, you don't want you don't desire to come to me that you may have life. They knew a lot. They had been blessed with great signs and witnesses to Christ. But they didn't respond with faith because of a deep-seated desire against God. Is what Jesus is saying. The root of all unbelief is a desire against God. You don't want to come to me. That's what Jesus says. And this desire is being exposed as people respond to, to Christ. So Jesus' coming did not create unbelief in the hearts of these Jews. It's exposing unbelief that's already there in the Old Testament scriptures. Lack of love for God that's already there. Even though they think they believe the scriptures, even though they think they love God, Christ is exposing it. No, you don't. And still today, many people claim love for God and love for his word. But their lives are not characterized by trust in Christ and love towards Christ, expressed in obedience to his word. Christ is the one with whom we must reckon. That's what Jesus is saying. So now we come to our passage this morning, and it's the second point you can see in your outline. Last week, 
verses 30 to 40 declared that the Father's unmistakable witness about the Son removes excuses and exposes the heart. And now this morning, we're going to see verses 41 through 47 declared that the people's unimaginable unbelief in the Son is uncovered at its roots and unmasked in its rebellion. So the question now is that what is at the root of this desire? So they don't come to Christ. They fail to respond rightly to the witnesses of Christ because they don't want to. They don't desire. Well, why? What is at the root of that desire? What is hindering them? And that's what this passage is going to explain. They don't come to Christ because they don't desire to. Well, why? Well, look at the, the first point here, verses 41 through 44. Jesus' character will reveal fallen man's kind love affair with the praises of people. His character will reveal fallen mankind's love affair with the praises of people. And it is this love affair, this affection for the approval of man over the approval of God, which lies at the heart of unbelief in Christ. Why? Why is that the case? How does that work? Well, let's look at it. Verses 41 to 42 gives us Christ's contrast, the character of Christ contrasts with fallen mankind. So note first the selfless pursuit of Christ, verse 41. Jesus says, I do not receive glory from people. I do not receive glory from men or from people. So this phrase, this, this sentence is very similar to verse 34. Look what he says back there. It says, not that the testimony I receive is from man, or um, you could read it, that I do not receive testimony from a person. Now look back down at verse 41. I do not receive glory from people. Sounds very similar. The point back in verse 34 was that ultimately Jesus does not rely on the witness of any one person. John the Baptist's witness is helpful, but it's not where... Jesus ultimately rests his claims. Um, what people testify him ultimately means nothing if God the Father doesn't say the same thing. And now in verse 41, Jesus says that the ultimate drive and pursuit of Jesus is not the glory that comes from any one person, but only the glory that comes from the Father. So Jesus is not saying that it's wrong for people to give him glory. It's not wrong for people to give him honor. Obviously, you must. You must give honor and glory to Jesus. Jesus just means that just as my ultimate reliance is not on the testimony of man, in the same way my ultimate pursuit is not for the praises and glory of people. So before we move on, we need to clarify what he means by glory in this passage. He says, I do not receive glory from people. It's going to come up in a few verses in verse 44. It's really going to be made clear there. Um, but, but this concept of glory really dominates this whole section. You've got to get what he's talking about. Glory usually carries one of two nuances, either that of visible splendor or that of honor and praise. Sometimes it can mean, it can mean both, uh, but usually one or the other is being highlighted. And I'm pretty sure in this section, what is being highlighted is that of honor. Glory meaning honor or praise or approval. 
And that's going to be made really clear in a couple verses. So if that is the case, verse 41, Jesus is saying that honor and praise from people towards him is not the pursuit of his ministry or the fuel of his ministry. It's not what drives him. It's not what he's aiming at is the approval of people. It's not what people say about him. It's not the praises or the approval people can give him. What drives him is only the glory, honor, and praise which the Father will give to him. But look at the contrast, verse 42. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. This is the loveless heart of the people. It says literally, I have known you that the love of God you do not have in yourselves. He says, I have known you. It's another one of these instances in John of the x-ray vision of Christ in the hearts of the people. He sees right to the core of their being. Flip back with me really quickly to chapter 2. We've seen this crop up a number of times, and this is really where it is stated the first time. Chapter 2, 23. Now when Jesus was at Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Something wrong with their unbelief, with their belief. Verse 24, Jesus on his part didn't entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew all people. He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. He sees right to the heart of these people's pretended belief in him. He sees what's going on in them. And the best example is Nicodemus. You must be born again. He sees right to the heart of them. He sees right to the heart of every one of us. What is going on? Jesus says, I have known you. I've known you thoroughly. I've evaluated you. I know what's going on in your hearts. He's none other than God himself who possesses comprehensive knowledge about everything in your life. But what is it that Jesus specifically knows about them? Look what it says. I have known you that the love of God you do not have within yourselves. Now this phrase, the love of God, it could mean one of two things. It could either mean our love for God or God's love for us, right? So the love of God, is it the love that God possesses or is it the love that we possess for God? It could go either way. I think it's pretty clear in this passage, it's talking about the people's love directed towards God, right? I have known you that the love of God is not within you. You don't have any love towards God in your hearts, is what Jesus is saying. This is another astonishing thing to tell these religious leaders, right? So he has already told them, you don't possess any true knowledge of God, back in verse 37. He says, God's word is not in you, verse 38. And he says, you don't even have the love of God. You don't even love God in your hearts. It's astonishing. This is the first echo back to Deuteronomy 6. So hold your hand here. Go to Deuteronomy. We're going to be going back and forth to Deuteronomy a couple times. Deuteronomy 6. These are religious leaders, orthodox, they think. They profess devotion to God. They defend the oneness of God's being. Look at verse 4 of Deuteronomy 6. 
is the pillar of Judaism, one of them. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Because God is one, you must respond to him with singularity of devotion, singularity of love and affection. And Jesus is saying that you Jews who profess verse 4 of Deuteronomy 6, you don't love him in the verse 5 sense. But why? What is the connection? Why does Jesus say that about them? How does he know that they don't have love for God? What is the connection between Jesus not pursuing praise and honor from people and these people being guilty of lovelessness for God? What's the connection between these two verses? That's really what the rest of the passage is going to explain for us, but I think we can already begin to make some connections here. So the goal of Jesus' ministry is not to win the praises of people, verse 41. His goal is to please his Father. This evidences his great love for the Father. Because he loves his Father, he only cares about his Father's opinions, right? But these Jews express their lovelessness to the Father by rejecting one who is consumed with the concern for the Father alone. You see? Even though they claim to love God, Jesus is saying that if they truly love God, two things would be happening. Number one, they would also be governed with a concern for the approval and the praises of God alone. And number two, they would love Jesus, who is so consumed with the glory and the honor and the praise of God as well. And they do neither. They don't love God. And the following verses are going to show that these people are the complete opposite with Jesus. What governs them is a love for and the pursuit of the praises and honors of others. And it is this craving which is exposed and threatened by Jesus. But before we move on, I just want to hammer out this principle um, really quickly for us. It's so important. Love for God evidences itself in a concern with pleasing God over pleasing man. Let me say that again. Love for God evidences itself in a concern with pleasing God over pleasing man. Jesus loves the Father supremely and therefore seeks his pleasure alone. He doesn't care about whether people approve of him or not. And the lovelessness of God evidences itself in a concern with pleasing man over pleasing God. So think about it in terms of a marriage. What would you think of a husband who's more concerned about the opinions and praises he can get from other women about himself than he can get from his wife? He'd be an adulterer in his heart, right? What he loves is himself and the attention he can get from other women. Something very wrong there, right? But to a husband who loves his wife, the only thing that matters to him is the opinions of his wife. What other, think, other women think about him doesn't matter to him. He's not about getting attention from others for his selfish desires, right? His goal is to selflessly give himself to pleasing his wife. And it's the same here. 
with our relationship with God. The extent to which you're concerned with the approval of God over the approval of people is the extent to which you love God. No more and no less is what Jesus is saying. If you love God, the only thing that matters is obeying him, seeking his praise, even if it costs you all the opinions of others. That's what characterized the life of Christ. That's how much you love the Father. Well, that brings us to the next way Jesus' character reveals fallen mankind's love affair with the praises of people. It not only contrasts with fallen mankind, it also causes Rejection from fallen mankind. Verses 43 through 44. And these verses now are really going to zoom into what he's just talked about and unpack it a little bit more fully. What is the connection between Christ's all-consuming focus on the Father and the unbelief of the people? The connection is one of cause and effect. It's not only Jesus simply contrasts with them, but his devotion to the Father is a fundamental reason why people don't respond to him in faith. So look with me at verse 43. Mankind's motivation to reject Christ. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. What does that mean? Jesus has come in his Father's name. It means that he has come on the authority of his Father. He has come for the purposes of the Father. He has come simply as a representative of the Father to do what the Father has commanded him to do. Nothing more, nothing less. In the Old Testament, a prophet was to come in the name of God. That means they were truly sent by God. They spoke only what God gave them to speak. So go back with me to Deuteronomy again, chapter 18. I said we're going to be going back here a couple times. Deuteronomy 18, this is one of the tests of a true prophet. This is one of those instances in which Moses wrote about Christ, which Jesus will say at the very end of this chapter. Deuteronomy 18, verse 17. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. Sounds very similar to what Jesus has been saying. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name. See that? I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. Jesus is a prophet. He is the prophet promised here in Deuteronomy 18. And he has come in the name of the Father. It means he's come with the authority and the authentication of the Father. And therefore he only speaks the Father's words. And he only seeks the Father's honor and glory. But look at the response to him back in our, our chapter. 
I have come in the name of the Father, as his representative, as the true prophet, with his words only, seeking his glory alone. And you do not receive me. It's because Jesus has come in this way, ironically, the very thing that qualifies him to be the prophet, that therefore they reject him. You don't receive me. Receive me in John is equivalent with believing in Jesus. It's the same thing. You receive him by believing him. In other words, the unbelief of the people, in verse 38, is rooted in a desire against Christ, verse 40, which is now shown to be rooted in the fact that he has come to be one fully devoted to the purposes of the Father, such that he's not swayed a bit by the opinions of people. But why does that cause unbelief? That gets explained in the rest of the verse. Look at the second half. I've come in my Father's name, and that's why you don't receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Jesus here is probably talking about the false messiahs that came before him and would come after him. But it could also apply to any false prophet. These people come in their own name, right? It's contrasted with the, in, the, in the name of the Father. They are self-appointed. They stand on their own authority. They make their own claims for their own glory. They have their own prerogatives, their own mission. It's unto a self-centered glory winning the praises of people. They've come in their own name. These false prophets and false Christs come to win a following for self. Their message is little to do with God, little to do with loving him, submitting to him, obeying him, little to do with man's desperate need and guilt before God. Their purpose and message shifts according to what will gain them approval. They've come in their own name for their own purposes, for their own glory. And look at how the Jews and really all humanity respond to them. What does it say? If another comes in his own name, self-appointed, for his own purpose, his own glory, you will receive that one. That was the pattern of Israel in the Old Testament, rejecting God's true prophets and receiving those who came in their own name. And it's happening with God's final prophet, his son, who's come on the authority of the Father for the Father's purposes and to win the Father's praise and approval alone. It's so ironic. The very thing that qualifies Christ as being... The true representative of God is the reason why he's rejected. And the very thing that disqualifies pretenders is the very reason people flock to them. The world is full of those who've come in their own name, not just in Jewish history, not just false prophets and false messiahs, but all great philosophers, intellectuals, those who claim to be able to explain the meaning of life, fundamental problems with humanity, the fundamental solutions and needs to these problems. They've come with their own device message. They've not been authorized by God. They don't have God standing behind them. They've come to win the esteem and the favor of the world with their message. Absolutely no regard for God in the equation whatsoever, and people still flock to them in droves. Whether it is false teachers in Christianity, worldly philosophers, Secular ideologies, people love it, flock to it. Why? 
Well, verse 44 gives us the, the answer. Mankind's inability to receive Christ. Jesus says, how can you believe? What's the answer to that question? You can't. It's impossible. You cannot believe. Look what he says. You cannot believe so long as you are receiving glory from one another and the glory which comes from the only God you do not seek. Why do people receive self-glory seekers who come in their own name? What's the reason for that? It's because they are just like themselves. Receiving glory from one another implies a give and take. These false Christs are after the praises of people. And those who receive them do so for the praises that they can receive from them. It's a give and take. But why? It's because they don't threaten what is most valuable to them. They don't threaten their own reputation. In fact, they affirm it. They approve it. Their self-seeking coming affirms the lusts in our hearts, which cares more about what people think than about what God thinks. That's the craving of all of our hearts. And false teachers affirm that. People pleasers gladly receive people pleasers. Say it again. People pleasers gladly receive people pleasers. Why? Because people pleasers are not going to confront this root idolatry in our hearts. I want to be praised by man. Have you ever been around someone who is genuinely um, just God-focused? They don't seem to be swayed much by the fear of man. They're just a godly person, cares only about what God thinks. Um, faithful, loves the Lord. It's convicting. At least it is for me. I'm, I'm exposed. I see my pride. I see my love for self. I see how little I, I, I truly love God and, and little I truly care for God's opinions alone, how much I fear man, it's exposing. That's what Christ is doing here. And Jesus' point in this verse is that so long as self-praise is what is governing your heart, then faith in Christ is impossible. That's what he says. Why? Because Christ seeking the glory of the Father without regard to the praises of the people exposes us in our self-worship. It calls us to follow him on the road to the cross, submitting to God and rejecting the praises of men. If this is what Messiah is really like, it implicates you as his follower. You too must be like that. It calls you to imitate him in his example of death to self in obedience to the Father to the point of death. It's alone what mattered to Jesus, and it's the point here, is that it's what must characterize those who receive him as their Messiah. So put it this way, true faith seeks the glory that comes from God alone, the praise that comes from God alone, the opinions, the approval of God alone. Notice it says, the only God. Right, verse 44. The praise, the glory that comes from the only God. That's another echo back to Deuteronomy 6, right? Jesus here affirms, again, the oneness of God. There is one God, the only God. 
That's what the controversy started at in chapter 5. And Jesus said, if you really believed him, if you really believe that he is one, you would also do what Deuteronomy 6 says and love him exclusively. Which looks like what? A devotion to his praise alone, care about his opinion alone, and loving the one who most reflects his character and most cares about the Father alone. Jesus shows them that true faith in God, that he is one, is revealed in your devotion to him. And these Jews, as pious as they seem, are exposed to Christ. They don't love God. They don't even know him, despite what they confess. So put it this way. True faith in Christ comes from a heart that has died to its own cravings and lust for the approval of people. It embraces Christ for who he is and what he has spoken, regardless of the cost. It submits to Christ in obedience, despite the consequences. Its one concern is what God thinks. That's what the fear of the Lord is all about in the Old Testament. We talked about that extensively when we went through Proverbs. God's opinion is alone what matters. Look over at chapter 12 for a, just an excellent illustration of this. Chapter 12, verse 37. Chapter 12, verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who is believed when he's heard from us? And to whom has the eye, arm of the Lord been revealed? Skip down to verse 42. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But... For fear of man, fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they wouldn't be put out of the synagogue. For they loved, there's the desire, they craved, they loved the glory, the honor, the approval, the favor that comes from man more than the praise, glory, honor that comes from God. That's the connection. People don't come to Christ because they love the glory and approval comes from man more than that which comes from God. They have a love affair with self and the opinions of men more than the only opinion that counts for anything, what God thinks. Despite all the signs, people still reject him because it will cost them the favor of man. We're still in chapter 12. Look, look back at verse 24 of chapter 12. Jesus would call any who are his disciples to become just like him in selfless devotion to the Father. What matters to a disciple of Christ, a true disciple of Christ, is that you imitate him. You're growing in that, learning from him to die to the praise of self, to caring only about the Lord, about God, his thoughts. Verse 24 Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, 
there will my servant be also. Where is Christ going? He's going to the cross. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So before we finish, let's just pause here and consider this point just a bit more. The only thing that matters is the praise of God, the approval of God, not the praise of men. It's so contrary to our desires by, by nature. And this is what it means to be a true believer. The entire focus of your life is no longer on what people think. It's no longer the praises of men, but it is following Christ in discipleship. That what only matters is the praise of God towards you. This first drives you to Christ as your only hope, as you're exposed for your self-idolatry. What do you do? The first thing you do is you run to him for mercy. Christ exposes you here. What you're supposed to do is not run away from him. That's what the Pharisees are doing. They're feeling the piercing light of conviction that Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He is everything that I'm supposed to be. Don't run from him. Run to him for mercy. And then after you've done that, as a believer, make progress in your life. This is what your life's to be about every day, growing in this. Flip over to Romans chapter 2. Look what Paul says, something very similar here. What does it mean to be a believer? What does it look like to be a true believer? Romans 2. He's talking to Jews specifically here. Look at verse 28. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. I would say in John's terminology, that's the new birth. Look at this. His praise is not from what? Man, but from God. What is a believer? That's what a believer looks like. It's not how you become a believer. You become a believer by casting yourself in dependence on Christ. What does a true believer do? They follow Christ in this. They grow here. Become like him. Your praise, your pursuit in life is the praise not from man, but from God. So we'll come back to this in, in just a minute and, and wrap up with a couple implications. The passage has a couple verses to go. Let me just briefly tackle them. Verses 45 to, to 47. This is the second main point under the people's unimaginable unbelief. Jesus' character not only reveals fallen mankind's love affair with praise for, from people, but his words reveal fallen mankind's unbelief in antecedent scripture. Look at verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who will accuse you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, because he wrote about me. But if you do not believe in his writings, how will you believe my words? There's another one of those questions. They won't. They won't. The Jews set their hope on Moses, the idea in Jewish some Jewish interpretation says Moses is still interceding for the Jews, sort of like he did um, in Exodus. Could mean that they're depending on him, or simply they just depend on his writings. They have it. They call themselves disciples of Moses. 
They think Jesus is bringing some kind of accusation against them, but Moses stands on their side, and Jesus says, don't suppose that. Don't suppose that you're still on Moses' side and you only have me against you. Actually, Moses is against you. Why? Because of verse 46. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. Faith in Moses would transfer to faith in Christ. He wrote about Christ. Where did he write about Christ? Deuteronomy 18. The prophet's going to come in the name of the Lord and speak his words. But he also wrote about him in the entire thrust of his writings. This expectation that a seed is coming. The inability of man to keep the law shown by Israel's failure over and over and over again. You need another. Is pointing to him. The whole point of the old covenant is pointing to the Messiah's coming. And the kind of Messiah's coming. A Deuteronomy 6 kind of Messiah who loves the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is the one Moses wrote about. And if you had truly believed that, trusted that, known your desperate condition, your need for another, you would have believed Christ when he came. And this is going to be a, a big theme in John as we, as we go forward. So in closing, let me just wrap up with a couple thoughts for us and, uh, and then open it up for some questions and, and comments. First thing, let me just ask you, for what are you living? What is the drive of your life? Is it the approval of man, pleasing man, pleasing God? You're a fallen sinner like me. This craving still hangs on, but are you fighting it? Are you making war against it? Do you realize that craving is in your heart for the praises of people more than the praises of God? How do you make decisions in your life? What weighs the heaviest on you? The answer to this will be revealed in how you relate to Christ. It goes beyond mere profession of faith. True faith in Christ reveals itself in devotion to him in the same way he's devoted to the prerogatives of his father. So this passage is just calling us repent where you see cravings in your heart. And they're everywhere in my heart. I see <laughs> there's a lot more than I even see. It's just so natural to who we are. I crave, I worship me. I want worship from others towards me. And I belittle the only opinion that counts, which is God's repent where you see it. See these cravings as dangerous hindrances to faith in Christ. They're dangerous. And embrace Christ as your Messiah and all the implications it brings to you as his disciples. He fulfilled the law for you. He is the seed, the Messiah, who fulfilled Deuteronomy 6 in your place. Now follow him. Imitate him. Come after him. Walk after him. Number two, understand the heart of unbelief. It's a, the, the root of it, the primary root of it, is people's desire to avoid him because of the implications it brings. It exposes us. It reveals my self-worship, my self-love. It calls us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow him. It will require a preoccupation with God and a denial of self. False Christs are out there everywhere. And they don't talk about this at all. In fact, they're all for their approval. And man, they will give you their approval if you follow them as well. 
It appeals to our lust. It doesn't threaten our self-worship. So that is John 5. And um, it ends on a, on a solemn note, but it's a glorious note. Because we have salvation in this one. Christ did it for you. He is the seed. Look to him. Trust him every day. Begin there. And follow him as your disciple, as his disciple. So any thoughts, any questions, um, comments on this passage? That's why Paul talks about dying daily Yeah. himself. That's good. In Luke, in, in Luke, Jesus even said, take up your cross daily and follow me. This idea is not a one and done. We do this every day. We fight indwelling sin to the day of our death. But the evidence that you're a believer is not that there's a fight. The evidence that you're a believer is not that there's no fight, but that there is a fight. Unbelievers don't fight this. What do they do? They love the praise of the men. And they flock to those who will give it to them. Sign that you're a believer is that you want to follow him, that you're putting it to death every day. Where you see it crop up, you repent. And you turn and you trust him again and grow. Any other thoughts, questions, comments? Um, I noticed in the Deuteronomy 6 passage that you mentioned um, where God's going over the different commandments on how to interact with them and worship him. Excellent. Exactly right. Yep. Christ is the fulfillment of Deuteronomy. He is the true Israel. He is the one that fulfilled in the place of Israel and in your stead God's requirements. Not so that you can sit back and not do anything, but that you could be justified by faith alone, through grace alone, and follow Him and grow, become like the image of Christ. That's good. Thoughts, questions, comments? Alrighty, it's 1016. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you how your word cuts and pierces. You know us. You know us through and through. You see our sinful hearts. And the astonishing thing is that God so loved the world, this kind of people, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes him, looks to him, trusts him, not perish, but have eternal life. Thank you for that, Father. And I thank you that you not only hold out the provision, but everything in our hearts opposes you and will not believe in you unless you do something to us. You conquer that self-worship and give us new life. I thank you, Father, that you've done that. Thank you for Christ. Thank you that he is the perfect image of you and the fulfillment of all of your commandments, promises, purposes. Father, now our desire is to follow him. Lord, this week, will you expose to us cravings for the praises of men in yeah. our lives, that we would repent of those, that we would turn and submit ourselves again to you. It's only your opinion that counts, Father. You're so gracious to us. We love you so much. As the bless us and the teach us in the service to come, we thank you 
in Jesus' precious name.